Well, Merry Christmas, and it's certainly good to celebrate together with you all this morning. I think that this is our sixth Christmas together as Hope Bible Church, and I have made no apologies uh, for preaching the Nativity account every single year. I have a strong opinion that the good old stories are good old stories for a reason and that we should consider them over and over. But I am going to stay in our study of Philippians this year, and I do not consider it a departure from our normal pattern, because we often consider the nativity from different perspectives. So sometimes we'll talk about Mary's perspective, or Joseph's perspective, or the shepherd's perspective, the wise men's perspective. But this year we're going to consider the most important perspective— And that is God's perspective. What was God's perspective on the incarnation? Now, if you're new to the faith, if you're new to this church, you may not know what that word incarnation means. Maybe you've heard it before. It is a theological word that you should know. It simply means God became a man. Emmanuel means God with us. And in his birth, Jesus as God, came to live among us as a human being. It's probably best expressed by John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you have your, a hard time getting your mind around that, that's okay. How could the one through whom all things were created, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, be a newborn baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feed trough? I can't explain it, but I believe it, because that is what the Bible has revealed to us. That is what God has revealed to us through his word. Do you really believe that God became a man? Because For 2,000 years, we have known Christ by faith. We have known him through prayer. We have known him through the word. We have known him through our fellowship together. We know things about him, like he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that all sounds like God. It is easy for me to conceive of him as God through faith. But do you believe that he was and is still a man, a human being just like you and me with flesh and bones and blood pulsating through his veins? Consider this. If you had lived 2,000 years ago during the time of his incarnation, it would have been easy to believe that he is a man. You could see him. You could hear him. You could touch him. Those who grew up around Jesus in Nazareth had no doubt that he was a human being. But how hard was it for them to believe that he was God? I am amazed at the faith of the shepherds and the wise men. Because our, our Christmas carols really don't do this justice. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Not true. Babies cry when they are hungry. If they're If little Lord Jesus didn't cry, there would have been something wrong with him. He was a real human baby, and of course he cried. I've been particularly struck this year at 
silent night, which speaks of radiant beams from thy holy face. Also not true. No beams. Uh, no laser beams from the eyes. No halos. Just a newborn little baby. We've been blessed uh, this year with the arrival of little Adrian and little Daisy, and they're cute, and everybody wants to hold them, but nobody's bowing down to them. Let's just say an angel appeared to you this evening and proclaimed to you that God himself has been born in a short walk from your house. Oh, and you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in the feeder of the Pettijohn's chicken coop. Now you might say, I need to go and check on that baby to see if he's okay. But you're not going to go and bow down lightly. I, I think the, the shepherd's faith was more than a mustard seed's worth of faith. And so we should read the Christmas story over and over again, but we shouldn't get too comfortable with it. To say God needed a diaper would be blasphemous if it didn't really happen. So Philippians 2 5 through 11 gives us a theology of Christmas. It tells us about the incarnation from God's perspective. What does Christmas mean to God? And I would say Christmas or no Christmas, this is a passage worth meditating on, worth knowing, worth memorizing. And I hope that you will, you will find time tonight or tomorrow to discuss these things together with your family. Let me read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We've been reading it for this entire Advent season. Let me read it this morning as we consider this passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Uh, some translations say have this attitude. Your attitude should be the same as Christ. Have you ever been told by your mother you need to change your attitude? You're having a bad attitude. What was it like to be Jesus, brothers and sisters, and have Mary say, you all need to change your attitude, except you. Your attitude is fine. Jesus never had a bad attitude. But if we are to be the kind of people, the kind of humanity that Paul proposes us to be, then, then the Philippians and us, we need an attitude adjustment. Paul said, he just said in the previous passage, we looked at it last week, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to others. I came across this quote in some other reading this week. God doesn't want us to be half saved. He wants us to be completely saved, filled with faith and love. He wants us to be like Jesus. All that selfish ambition, all that vainglory, all of that self-interest, 
God's desire is not that we take that down by a percentage. Our testimony should not be, before I was saved, I was always a proud, obnoxious weasel, but now I just do it every other day. God wants all of it. No, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. None of it. And so, to finish this long emotional exhortation, we've been here since the week after Thanksgiving. We started in, in chapter 1, verse 27, where, where Paul says, only live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're going to finish it up today, and we're going to see this mind of Christ to which we should aspire. And so I'm just going to give you five statements. I'll give them to you as we go along this morning. The first one is this. Jesus Christ voluntarily gave up all the privileges that go with being God. Let me give that to you again. Jesus Christ voluntarily gave up all the privileges that come from being God. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you're new to the Christian faith this morning, or if you're new to thinking deeply about these things, I want to tell you something very important, and that is this. Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born on Christmas Day. Jesus did not just begin to exist when he was conceived in Mary of the Holy Spirit. He has always existed as the second person of the Trinity. In all eternity, Jesus existed in perfect love and peace and comfort with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He was and is and always will be equal with God. And he enjoyed all the privileges of being God. He was always in the form of God, even before he came in the form of man. And the astounding thing about the incarnation is that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not regard being equal with God as something to be grasped. He did not consider it something to be held on to. Last weekend, we started watching Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So Harrison Ford, he is one of the most iconic actors of my generation, all right? Let, let, me, just, let me just name some people, that, some characters that Harrison Ford has played. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Han Solo, Indiana Jones, Dr. Richard Kimball, Jack Ryan. These are, these are iconic, any, many actors would be thrilled to have one of those roles. And, and, and Harrison Ford has had many. Clearly, in the Dial of Destiny, Harrison Ford, being 82, is trying to cling to something. He's trying to grasp something that is being taken away from him. Because he looks like an old man. And he is an old man. And that former glory is gone. And it seems a little wrong to watch him try to be that young man again. And I showed you last week how Satan in, 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 is the original glory snatcher, right? Isaiah 14, we read, how you have fallen from heaven, O, o day star, son of the dawn, how you were cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations, you said in your heart, and then he gives these five statements that start with I will. I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like 
the Most High. So these are the things that Satan said in his heart when he rebelled against God. This is the selfish ambition because Satan tried to take glory that did not belong to him. He tried to snatch the glory of the Creator by saying, I will make myself like God, the Most High. He was not satisfied to exist as a creature in the presence of glory. He wanted glory for himself. And so unlike Harrison Ford, Jesus Christ did not try to cling to fading glory. He is forever glorious. He possesses a glory that will never fade. And unlike Satan, Jesus did not try to grasp glory that did not belong to him because he already has all the glory. And so like Satan, it is deeply embedded in our fallen, sinful human condition to cling desperately to what we have or think we have and to strive desperately after what we don't have. And so that's why Paul's exhortation to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another as more more significant than ourselves. It feels so alien to us because, I'll indict myself here, and you can join me, we are clingers and we are graspers. Jesus was open-handed. My my friend Sean Sean Higgins said one time, Satan grabbed glory Jesus grabbed a towel, and he washed his disciples' feet. They were amazed that one they respected so much would do the work of a servant. Peter couldn't bear it. I I should be washing your feet. Jesus, just let me wash your feet. Jesus gave up all the privileges of being equal to God. Every privilege that comes with being God. He set it aside. It's probably best stated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet he became poor for your sake so that by his poverty you might become rich. Secondly, not only did Jesus give up all the privileges of being equal to God, Jesus Christ himself, being God, became a slave. Jesus Christ, being God, became a slave. It says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Okay, so many, many vials of ink has been spilled in the last 2,000 years over this little phrase, emptied himself. You might hear this referred to as the doctrine of the kenosis, all right? Kenosis is simply the word that comes from kanao, which is this word emptied. This is a much discussed word. And the problem here is that Paul doesn't say what it is that Christ actually emptied himself of. It just says he emptied himself. Now, it is very important that we all understand that Jesus did not empty himself of one single ounce of his godness, of his deity, nor did he empty himself of any of the attributes that belong to him, because he is God. From his conception and birth, Jesus remained fully God. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Everything it means to be God 
dwells in Christ Jesus. So it is better to think of Christ emptying of himself as the laying aside of his privileges that were his in heaven. Rather than stay on his throne, Jesus, the NIV translates it, made himself nothing. And when he came to earth, he gave up those divine privileges. He veiled his glory, and he chose to occupy the position of a slave. And this is why, by the way, I don't like to sing about beams of light coming from his holy face, because normal human babies don't have beams of light. And to me, that statement in Philippians 2.7 is sort of negated by that verse. Had Jesus not emptied himself of his glory, there would have been more than radiant beams. At, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus just peeled back the curtain a little bit for Peter, James, and John, they went to their knees. Those weren't just beams. And so many theologians are frustrated here that Paul just drops this statement about self-emptying but doesn't really explain it, but that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is Jesus, being God, became a servant. That's the point. That's the point of this whole passage. Jesus, being God, became a servant. Why shouldn't we as followers of Christ? He emptied himself of all the privileges of deity, and in light of that, we should serve one another. If I had to say what it was that Jesus emptied himself of, I would say he emptied himself of glory. And I say that from John 17, which we looked at a couple of years ago. John 17, 5, in his final prayer, Jesus prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Restore to me that glory. So that's an educated guess of what it was that Jesus emptied himself of. But we know that Jesus goes to the cross thinking and trusting that the Father will indeed raise him from the dead and restore him to the glory that he had in eternity past. Number three, Jesus Christ, being God, took on everything it means to be fully human. Jesus, being God, took on everything it means to be fully human. It says, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. If you're wondering when it is that we're going to get to the Christmas part of this Christmas sermon, we have arrived. Jesus' humiliation didn't start when he went to the cross. It started in Bethlehem when he was born a real baby. So Jesus became a real member of the human race. In the likeness of men means he was not wearing a disguise. Jesus was not Superman with human clothes where he could just like pull back his shirt and there was a big G on his chest. That's not the way it worked. This is a common misunderstanding of the incarnation. That baby born in a stable, as I've already said, was a real baby in every sense of the word. He cried when he was hungry. He needed his diaper change. There was nothing about that infant that seemed more glorious than any other infant. Contrary to the beautiful paintings, there was no halo. Pastor Stephen Davies says this, Before his incarnation, Christ was clothed with glory of divine splendor. We cannot even imagine the glory When God took on human flesh and blood, he looked like an average Jewish male. 
In Isaiah 53, it says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. So God becoming man was an act of humility. Had he been born in a palace, Jesus would still have been letting go of the glory that he deserved, but he did not choose to be born in a palace. He chose to be born in a stable in a backwater town in the middle of the Roman Empire. Mary, his mother, was a teenage girl betrothed to Joseph, having been found pregnant. No one would have believed that she was still chaste. It was a scandal. No one would have been inclined to believe her story, that an angel appeared to her and that the Holy Spirit came upon her. Joseph had to be told in a dream because he was going to quietly put her away. Mary gave birth away from home in a stable. There was no room in the guest room. We won't get the end of that this year. Family in Bethlehem would not have cared to welcome the shameful couple into their home. A stable outside would have to suffice. His birth announcement was to lowly shepherds. How will we know which baby it is? It's the baby in the feed trough. There's only one. The New Testament is clear that he knew humanity except for sin. Everything we know about humanity, at least in kind, Jesus experienced. And by the way, it's not necessary for humanity to be sinful. Before the fall, humanity was not sinful. One day in the future, humanity will once again. So, so my point is, sin is not inherent to being human. You can be a human and not sin. He fell down. He skinned his knee. He went to his mom. He cried. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew up. He went to school. He learned things. He learned from his synagogue. He learned the things that he needed to know. He ate. He drank. He played. He got tired. He wept. He cried at funerals. He endured the loss of Joseph his earthly adopted father, he knows what it's like to lose someone dear to you. He spent years working and providing for his mother and his sisters and brothers. The writer of Hebrews tells us he was tempted and tried as we are yet without sin. He was made like his brothers in every respect. As Christians, it should be our heart to know Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3, I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you hear that? There's surpassing worth in knowing Jesus, but you don't get to just make up who Jesus is. I was just talking with someone before about all of the different documentaries that happen on cable TV at Christmas and Easter and all those ads that promise we're going to discover the historical Jesus and we'll talk to all the scholars and all the archaeologists and they'll consider a bunch of obscure extra-biblical resources but you won't find much consideration of the Bible and probably nobody will mention Philippians 2. Paul is describing the actual Jesus in Philippians 2. If you want to know Jesus, you should give careful thought to this passage. Remember, the Jews were very turned off to who Jesus actually was. Suffering and dying Messiahs wasn't in their theology. 
Jesus defied their expectations, and he defies ours too. Don't be so certain that you know him. Keep on pursuing him. Also, don't be tempted to think, well, Jesus lived like that, so I don't have to. Remember, Paul says, have this attitude in Christ Jesus, which was also in Christ Jesus. I don't have to live like this to be saved, but being saved, this is the manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. Number four, Jesus humbled himself, obeyed the Father, and died on a cross. Jesus, being God, humbled himself, obeyed the Father, and died on a cross. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Service, humility, obedience, and death. Those are the words that Paul uses to describe the person of Jesus, the selflessness of Jesus. If you want to know the attitude of Jesus, it's in those four words. When we, saw, when we studied John, I keep going back to John, there's this, this so much about John that relates to this passage, but do you remember we talked about how Jesus was the most dependent man who ever lived. In John 5, 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son came to do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Imagine sitting in a restaurant and you overhear two grown men talking, and one of them says to the other, I, I just, I'm totally dependent on my dad. I, I look to him for everything. I watch him to see what I should do next. And then I listen to him when he tells me to do something. That was Jesus' attitude. That would be so strange to hear that, but that's how he actually spoke. Service, humility, obedience, these are the words that rub our sinful hearts the wrong way. They make us bristle. Parents have to teach their children to obey because we're not born wanting to. One might expect the privileges of being deity to include not having to take commands, and yet Jesus only obeyed, and he continues to obey the Father. And when the Father says, son, it's time, return, he will obey once again. To obey another person is not to make yourself less than that person. This is hard for us, and yet that's the attitude that Paul tells us to have. Jesus obeyed his Father all the way to the cross. You know, had Jesus been born in another time, in another country, there might have been an easier method of execution for him. Something more humane, something more dignified, an electric chair, a lethal injection, even a firing squad or a hanging takes care of things much quicker. It's been said that a, a man who dies of crucifixion dies a thousand deaths. But not just the pain on the cross did he obey. Jesus endured all the wrath of our sins. He was an infinite being who could endure infinite wrath. Jesus' entire life on earth was marked by service, obedience, and humility. From the manger to the cross, his mind was set. Number five, Jesus Christ is exalted as Lord. Jesus Christ is exalted as Lord. As we think this morning about that little baby in the manger who grew up to be the man on the cross, all of that service, all of that obedience, all of that humility, 
It all had a purpose. He did not just endure for the sake of enduring. He endured for the glory set before him. Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul Miller describes Jesus' life. He uses the letter J, which is easy to remember. It's the J curve is what he calls it. Service, humility, obedience, death. But at the bottom, there's resurrection, and then there's glory. Going down to go up. Glory snatchers, by the way, they follow the opposite path, rising, rising, and rising. They die, and their destiny is not resurrection, but death and destruction. So Paul is actually quoting in this passage from Isaiah 45. In in Isaiah 45, Yahweh is declaring to Israel that there is no God other than him, He is the only one who can save. And then he declares, this is from Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. In Philippians 2, Paul is saying, Jesus Christ is that same God. He's the only one who can save. And to him, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There's a progression in this passage, by the way. Jesus starts out, he is God, being in the form of God. At the end of the passage, having crucified and risen from the dead, he is declared to be Lord. Did you hear that? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will proclaim. Every single one of us this morning, everyone in this room, we will all bow before Jesus. Those who bow the knee to him in this life will follow him to glory. Those who refuse will fall to their knees in judgment before they are condemned to eternal punishment. For glory snatchers, their glory will be followed by humiliation. Do you want to be exalted by the Lord? Imagine being in the presence of the President of the United States, and there's a crowd, and he says, David Cleland, no way. Come on down here. Come on down here. Hey, everybody, this is my buddy. He's an associate of mine, right? And maybe that sounds a little shady today. But how about this? James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Because one day, having closed your eyes in death, you will open your eyes in life, and you will find Jesus, the one you have only known thus far by faith. And you will see him with sight. And you, like everybody else who encounters the risen Lord Jesus, will certainly fall on your knees before him. And then he will reach down, and he will lift you up. And before all the heavenly hosts, he will say, I know this person. He's been my friend. He's been my close associate. He can stand with me in my 
presence. Glory snatchers will never get to experience that. Only those who live with the same attitude as Christ, service, humility, obedience, and death. For all the great theology in this passage, the point is simple. Serving is the heart of God. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. Service characterized his entire ministry. If you don't want to serve, you don't have the attitude of Jesus Christ. We should also notice that he did so freely and voluntarily. He was under no compulsion. It was not impossible for him to assert his deity. It was not impossible for him to utilize the attributes that belong to him. He chose not to. Relevant to our own cultural mood right now, he was not a victim. He did not identify as a victim. He identified as a servant. He humbled himself. He was not humbled. And finally, he did so out of obedience to the Father. He became obedient unto death. At the end in the garden, as he wept drops of blood, he stated, Father, not my will, but thine. I want to end with this quote from uh, Spurgeon. All of us good Baptists in here, we like Spurgeon. We ought all of us to think how our blessed Lord cast in his lot with the poor. When those wise men came from the east, I dare say they were surprised at first to find that Jesus was a poor man's child. Yet they fell down and worshipped him, and they opened their treasury, and they presented him with very costly gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Ah, when the Son of Man, when the Son of God made the great stoop from heaven to earth, he passed the glittering palaces of kings and the marble halls of the rich and the noble, and took up his abode in the lodgings of poverty. Still, he was born king of the Jews. Have you ever heard of a child being born a king? Of course not. Children have been born princes. Children have been born heirs to a throne. But no one other than Jesus was ever born a king. The poverty of our Savior's circumstances is like a foil that sets off the glorious dignity of his person. You have read of good kings, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, yet... If they had not been kings, we would never have heard of them. But quite otherwise with Jesus Christ. He was possessed of more true greatness in that stable than any other king ever possessed in a palace. But do not imagine it was only in his childhood that Jesus was the kinsman of the poor. When he grew up to be a man, he said, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not anywhere to lay his head. Do you know that our comforts were purchased at the expense of his sufferings? He became poor that we, through his poverty, might become rich. We ought, therefore, to thank and praise the blessed Jesus every time we remember how much worse off he was in this world than we are. So we'll close this morning by doing what we always do, we will come together for the Lord's table, even on Christmas morning. It's a meager feast. What an appropriate time to celebrate such a meager feast compared even to what we enjoyed a few minutes ago at breakfast. It's simple and humble, 
like our Lord at his birth, but it represents Jesus' death and resurrection as it leads to glory. His body was broken and his blood was poured out. And getting to the end of the Ephesians 2 passage, it points to a more glorious feast, one to which all who follow Christ will be invited, just like his life, humility followed by glory. So if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then we would invite you to partake in this feast also with us. But if not, just wait, hang on, talk to one of the elders here, talk to somebody around you. We would love to invite you to Jesus so that you can come and participate another time with us in the full understanding of what it is we're doing. Uh, the, the men will pass out the, the bread and the cup and uh, hang on to that and then we'll read a passage and we'll partake together.